0: Good morning Redemption Arcadia, so glad that you're here with us and for those of you that are catching us online uh, Excited to worship the Lord with you today and thankful that we can be here together Would you stand and we'll worship the Lord for his faithfulness and his great name this morning i sorry. The earth may pass away, your word remains the same Your history can prove, there's nothing you can't do You're faithful and you're true His body bound and birth in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance. you for what you've done. We praise you for your faithfulness, God, to us, your church. May you be glorified in the things that we do together this morning with you and with each other, with your family, your body. Lord, our prayer is that each of these things will be done to your glory and for our growth. We praise you, God, the name above all names. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you remain standing for the reading of the scripture?
1: He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday. By the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the reading of the Lord. You may be seated.
2: All right, thanks JT. Good morning, Redemption. So if you haven't met JT, JT is doing an internship with us this semester, and uh, he's been uh, really a blessing to us and uh, a lot of fun, and we've also nominated him as Radio Voice of the Year in case you were wondering (laughs) about that. So anyway, thanks, JT. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia, and if you're wondering about Redemption Church, it's one church with nine congregations in Arizona, soon to be ten. We are 10, but officially in January we'll be 10. Uh, we, we are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Uh, I do have three announcements before we get into the sermon today, which will be in John chapter 4, and that's the only place we'll be. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your phones and your apps, um, go ahead and just turn to uh, those last 12 verses of John chapter 4, and you'll be fine. So first of all, um, this coming Tuesday, Uh, we are breaking our election season fast uh, with a night of prayer here in the sanctuary. And so uh, Trey is putting this together and organizing it. So from 6 to 7, there's going to be prayer, and then from 7 to 8, there's going to be food. And so we'd love for you to RSVP for that event so we know how much food to be able to have here. But um, it's... And I know some of you are probably thinking, I want to stay home and watch the election results. No, you don't. You want to come and pray because we really need prayer for this election season. So uh, anyway, so that's on Tuesday night. And then um, the following Saturday, uh, like uh, another weekend away, uh, on the 14th is our annual workday. We've done this uh, now all four years that we've been in this property that God has graciously provided for us. Uh, We want to be good stewards of it, so once a year. Uh, in uh, November, we gather as many people as we can, and we make a list of like, sort of like medium-sized chores that need to be done that aren't part of the regular maintenance, but also aren't major things that we have to ha- contract out for. And so we try to get that all done uh, in four hours on Sunday, Saturday morning, and, and we always do a nice job, and the, it really helps the campus, and it helps... Um, uh, us to be able to maintain things here. So we'd love for you to sign up for that. It's from 8 to noon, and then we're going to provide lunch afterwards outside on the patio. And so, again, we'd need you to RSVP for that so we know how much uh, food to bring. And if you're handy with any sort of tool, it doesn't matter. And even if you're not handy with any tools, there's stuff for guys like me that don't don't know how to turn on a hammer. And, and so, you know, I, they'll find something even for me to be able to do. I'm good at clipping Polo because I don't, really care for Polo Verdes, so I'll clip them. They have to tone me down a little bit with the Polo Verdes. So. Uh, and then the last um, announcement, pretty serious stuff. I'd like you to really pay attention to this. Uh, in March, uh, the Elder Board at Redemption Arcadia, that would be myself, Steve Wheeler, and Jim Moreland, uh, set out to uh, expand the Elder Board to five or six. It's We're going to expand it to five, it looks like now. Um, and there is a very detailed and comprehensive process that Redemption churches go through in order to nominate elder candidates. Uh, they're not going to be voted on, but you'll at least we're going to have a 30-day period of time where you get to, we get to kind of get to know them. Um, but we have gotten our list down to the two who are certainly called by God uh, to do this work and uh, are going to be uh, candidates for elder And uh, those two men are going to be introduced next week. I'm not going to tell you who they are today, but I want you to be aware that next week during the Sunday services, they're going to be just introduced so that you know who they are. And Steve Wheeler, one of our elders, and actually he's sort of the de facto, uh, we don't have an official chairman of the Elder Board, but he's kind of like the chairman of the elders because he asks more questions than anybody, so he gets that title. Uh, But he's going to introduce them uh, to us. And then As part of that 30-day process of just getting to know them, on Wednesday night, November 11th, please mark this in your calendar, Wednesday night, November 11th, that'll be our Wednesday night class. From 6.30 to 7.45 in here, I'm going to interview these two uh, men. Uh, From 6.30 to 7.45, we are going to live stream it, we're going to record it, and put it on the YouTube channel as well. Um, But if you want to come in person and be here live, uh, you are more than welcome to Uh, to be able to meet and get to know these guys if you don't already know them uh, a little bit more uh, deeply. We're excited about this, but we've also, this has been a strange process in the sense that um, lots of times when you nominate elder candidates at a church, um, things are going really well in church world. And uh, it's all cupcakes and muffins, and so people are like, yeah, I'm ready to be an elder. It's just going to be so easy. Uh, These two guys understand that they're entering into this level of church. They've been leaders in our church, but they're entering into this level of church leadership at a tumultuous time in the church, and not just redemption. I mean churches everywhere. Uh, Considering the political uh, turmoil and culture that we're in the middle of, um, the, the pandemic, uh, churches have challenges right now. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough time to step up as a leader and both of them have prayed and have searched their hearts. Their wives have been involved in this decision and uh, right up front and they firmly believe that they are called and they know that they're not coming into a cupcakes and muffins situation in the church in America today. They know it's broccoli and cauliflower and will be for a while, so they understand that. And so we feel blessed that these uh, men have decided to step forward at this time uh, to be able to do this. So be praying for that, and next Sunday we'll introduce you to them, and then Wednesday the 11th we'll have a little bit of a uh, a nice little interview with them, okay? So let's pray, and we'll get into John, the rest of John chapter 4 today. Lord God, we open up your word now, and we pray that your truth and your wisdom uh, would just settle on us, and that uh, we want you to know that we welcome your Holy Spirit here, and ask the Spirit to fill us and to enlighten us uh, during this time so that we might understand your word from you. Uh, Take the word of God and apply it to the hearts of the people of God, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So 42 verses last week, just 12 this week, that's about, I don't know, roughly 30%. Don't worry, my sermon will not be only 30% of what it was last week. Sorry about that. I know some of you were excited, but it's not true. I can always find stuff to talk about. Uh, and yes, there is a miracle in this 12-verse passage, but if, if a casual reading of this passage, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of anything else going on here, but there, but there is. Uh, when you slow down... And read closely, which you should do with Scripture. Read Scripture formationally, not informationally. Of course you're going to glean the information, but you also need the formation that Scripture gives you, and and you can't do that with haste. So when you slow down and read this passage closely, hopefully you'll begin to see that verse 48 is the nexus of this passage. It's very important. It's a big deal. And it was important teaching for the people there at that time, and it's also important teaching for us in our time. And we'll eventually get that, but there are a couple of other items that we need to set us up for before we dive in. Uh, first of all, some people read this passage and assume it is the same healing that they read about in Luke chapter 8 or Matthew chapter 7. It is not. Uh, the healing that Luke and Matthew both record, which is the same healing, those two healings, Uh, is where a centurion's, a Roman soldier's, uh, servant is healed. But here, in John chapter 4, we see that a royal official's son is healed. So they're not the same. And if you also look at the chronology of the events, you begin to realize these are not the same uh, events. Uh, It's a different miracle. And it's the second miracle that Jesus does in Galilee, this northern region Um, maybe 70 miles north of of, uh, Jerusalem and Judea. Um, Much of the action in John's Gospel does center in Jerusalem, but again, if you're not a careful reader, uh, you get a little bit thrown off by that. Half of John's Gospel uh, does center in Jesus being in Jerusalem, but it's the last week of Jesus' life. There's a lot that goes on during that last week. So the first half of of John is... uh, two years and 51 weeks of Jesus' ministry, mostly other than in Jerusalem or Judea. And the last week is in Jerusalem and Judea, but it's very concentrated that last uh, 11 or 12 chapters of the book of John. So here, however, we see that this sign is done in Galilee. So we're still early in the gospel when he's doing a lot of stuff up north. So we see this uh, second sign in Galilee. The first one was turning the water into wine in chapter two. And in And in chapter 6, we're going to have another miracle up in Galilee, and that'll be when Jesus multiplies the fish and the loaves and he feeds the 5,000. And so that leads to the second point before we get into today's passage. I want you to think about and consider these three miracles that I just mentioned more comprehensively, not just as one-off miracles, but put them together and consider them comprehensively in chapter 2 turning the water into wine the wine if you recall symbolizes joy blessing and restoration a big theme for the jews and for us the healing of the son who is on his deathbed that's here in verse 4 in chapter 4 which we're going to look at today that symbolizes resurrection and then that miracle in john chapter 6 which we will eventually get to, the multiplying of the loaves, that symbolizes God's provision. And so you put all that together and you begin to understand Jesus more comprehensively. You understand that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, but he's the also He's the author of, the, of new life and he is everything that you and I need. And you begin to understand the comprehensive nature of Jesus. Um, we tend to read and study scripture in little sections, and that's good, but we cannot forget the bigger picture, the bigger narrative, the bigger story, and put it together with all of that. So understanding that, let's look at this passage now a few verses at a time, starting with 43 through 45. So again, what JT read, after the two days that was in Sychar in Samaria, if you recall that from last week, he departed for Galilee For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So verses 44 and 45 are important in order to set up verse 48 as the nexus of this passage. So we need to look closely at what's going on there, this idea that a prophet has no uh, honor in his hometown. And... the the, the translation, the interpretation of this hometown doesn't necessarily mean where you're from originally, although it can, and it should in some cases, but it, it also means where you set up your headquarters. So you can be from somewhere else, but then go and live in a new town and set up your headquarters and become known by the people in that new town, and that becomes your hometown, and eventually you're not gonna have any honor in your hometown. Now, why? Why would that be? Because people are gonna get to know you and they're gonna see your flaws. Um, When I was in seminary, this is back in uh, 96 through 2000, I started at Fuller Theological Seminary at their extension here in Phoenix. And I did about 60% of my work here before I started going over to um, the main campus in Pasadena for the last bit of it. And when I was here, Very quickly, for whatever reason, I was put on a list at Fuller Seminary here in Phoenix of students that uh, when smaller churches in Arizona and Southern California would have a pastor go on vacation or need to go to a conference or just need a break or whatever, and they didn't have a pastoral staff or they they didn't have anybody else who could come in and preach in their absence— they would call Fuller Seminary and say, hey, can you send us one of your students to preach to us on a Sunday or on a couple of Sundays? And I was put on that list. And I, I got to tell you, it was, it was really quite a glorious time. For about three years, it was rare that I wasn't at some other church preaching on a Sunday morning in Arizona or Southern California. And one of the reasons it was really quite glorious was because I would go into these churches as an unknown, and Dennis, you already know, I I was a hero, man. I'd go in there and I would preach. They didn't really know me. And it was wonderful, and I had, you know, it's not like I was preparing a lot of new material every week. I had these what's known as sugar sticks that I would take everywhere that I would preach and I would hone. It was like a TED Talk, and so I'm like a hero. And then if I got invited back, then I had to come up with new material, of course. But nevertheless, it was like, oh, can you come back, please, and all this stuff. Why? Why was I such a hero? Because they didn't know me. They weren't familiar with me. Y'all know this is just the way it works. Here you go. In marriage, oh boy, now you're meddling, Frank. In marriage, Tim Keller, in his awesome book on marriage, The Meaning of Marriage, he has a whole chapter titled Learning to Love the Stranger You Married. Because when you get married, you know that you're in marketing mode right up until that ceremony and maybe the honeymoon. And then marketing mode ends. You understand that? Some of you are looking at me like you're really mad, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm revealing some secret. This ain't no secret. A prophet has no honor in his own town because people get to know who he is, and they realize that he's just as flawed as anybody else. It's even like occasionally, because of our, especially because of our proximity to central Phoenix, occasionally somebody will wander into Redemption Arcadia who went to high school with me in, in the 70s at North High School. And they'll wander in, and they'll see me. And, then, and apparently, they hadn't done any research before they came here. And they'll go, Frank Switzer? Yeah. And you're the pastor of this church? Is this a Christian church? I've had these interactions with people I went to high school. And interestingly enough, they never stay. They never, I don't have anybody I went to high school with staying here. Okay? Now, I, I think it's the music. I, I think they don't like the music, and that's why they've left. But that's how I kind of make myself feel better. But really, a prophet has no honor in his own town. Now, here, though, for Jesus is what's really fascinating when you think about this whole prophet having honor. Um, what's happening here is that John is reiterating what he taught also in John chapter 1 and what, something that we see throughout this gospel. Understand that the Jews had been waiting for centuries for the Messiah. Waiting, looking for the Messiah, literally for centuries, for 400 years. They had been waiting for God to speak to them again because Malachi was the last one to really speak to them, have God speak through him. And finally, the Messiah comes. Here he comes. And he meets all the criteria. He's Jewish, he's from the Davidic line, he's born of a virgin. His teaching blows away that of the professional religious people in Jerusalem. And he's doing signs and wonders and miracles. And yet he comes to his own people in Jerusalem, in Judea, and what? They reject him. He's the Messiah. Everything they've been waiting for, he checks every single box. There isn't a single box left unchecked. And yet they reject him. And that's what we're going to see in verse 48. And so he spends... Most of his three-year ministry outside of Jerusalem and in Judea, we see it in verse 45, 44 and 45, but we also see it in 48 as well. He knows that he's going to have a tough sell with his own. He's from Nazareth. We already know he can't minister there, but he also can't minister in Jerusalem and Judea very effectively because that's the home of his religion, and he's supposedly a rabbi, and those are his own people, and they reject him. Because he's pushing against the power and status structures. And it isn't really until he turns his face to the cross in the last week of his life that we see him spending a lot of time in Jerusalem, as I said. And guess what? When he goes to Jerusalem, when he finally does, what what happens to him? They kill him. They had the Messiah, and they kill the Messiah. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. But the Galileans here we see, they welcomed him. They, They liked him. Hey, we remember that wine thing. You're in, okay? So they welcomed him. And like I said, to understand verse 48, we have to see this setup up in 44 and 45. So here's 46 through 48. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him, And asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Understand, that was about a 25-mile walk that this guy went through to get, get to see Jesus. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So understand, this is, this is a royal official who works for the government. He's Jewish, so he understands about rabbis, and he understands... The teaching about the Messiah and about signs and wonders. He gets all of that. He's Jewish, but he's employed by the Roman government as an official working under Herod Antipas, who was the governor at that time of, of Galilee. And it's funny to me, and, and not funny, haha, but it's funny in, in, a, in an ironic sense. Here's, here's what's happening, and we need to grasp this. Here's what's happening. His son is on his deathbed. As a parent, Let me tell you something. That would just be absolutely, tremendously devastating. You'll do anything, okay? What he's dealing with here, this man, is he's beginning to understand that no matter how much power or money or status or importance you and I have in this world, when something very dear goes very wrong to something that is really important to you, and that something wrong that happens as it almost always is, is completely outside of your, your control. At that moment, you and I are confronted with our absolute lack of self-determination, of self-control, of ability, and hope, apart from Tony Robbins. No? Apart from Oprah. No? apart from our education, apart from our status, apart from our power in the marketplace, apart from our social media influence. That's it. That's it. You see what I'm getting at. He recognizes all the power that he has in his culture. He can't do a single thing to save his son. He can't do a single thing. He's got wealth, he's got power, he's got status. This guy never would have come for Jesus except for one word, and that word is desperation. He's at the end of his rope, he's tried everything else, he is now desperate. The gospel is for desperate people. And our biggest challenge is that we don't understand just how desperate we really are. That's our biggest challenge. Uh, This this will sound a little bit self-serving, and maybe it is, but I can tell you that those of us who have the opportunity to preach in prison, we love preaching in prison because they are desperate down there. They understand in prison their lack of self-determination, their lack of self-control, their lack of ability, their lack of hope. They have a full and comprehensive understanding of that. And so when somebody goes in and preaches the gospel, this is what they want to hear because they finally have something that they can sink their teeth into that is real to them because they are desperate. And we're the same as the prisoners. We just don't understand it. We don't get it. This guy is desperate, he's willing to do whatever it takes. And he could not control the fact that his son was dying. All of us are in that same boat as the royal official. We can never save ourselves from anything in this world with anything in this world. There's nothing we have, nothing we've done, nothing we've achieved. None of it saves us from our sin except the Messiah who is rejected by his own, which is what it says in John chapter 1. Before John even gets into the story, he says Jesus is going to go to his own and his own are going to reject him. And this is the theme that we see over and over and over and over again. I came to Christ in 1987 when I was 27, 28 years old. I came to Christ only when I was finally at the end of me, that's when I finally came to Christ, because I finally began to understand that I had no self-determination, I had no ability, I had no self-control, I had no hope in my ability to control everything that's going on around me. That That was when the gospel became real to me. It wasn't because God was going to do something temporally for me. It wasn't because God was going to help me close a deal, it wasn't because God was going to help me get the girl, it wasn't because of anything other than my understanding of my lack of ability and my desperate need for God in my life. So the royal official humbles himself and comes to Jesus. He's either heard about him or maybe he saw the miracle at Cana, I don't know, but he's He's heard, and so he figures, this is my only chance, this magic worker who calls himself Jesus, who happens to be a rabbi as well. Maybe he can help me. And so he comes and he, he asks Jesus. That's what it says in the Bible. But that Greek word, is ask, is too weak. He implores Jesus. He begs Jesus. He's desperate. And in verse 48, Jesus says something to him that I think feels and seems so incongruent with what's happening. He doesn't say, yeah, I'll go with you, or no, I won't. Instead, he says, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why does Jesus say this? It seems so incongruent. Well, first of all, we need to understand that in the Greek, the you is plural. He's speaking to the royal official, but he's saying, you, Texas Jesus, all y'all, you, all the Jews, all of my own people, the Jewish religious professionals, all of you in Judea, all of you in, in Jerusalem, whose home-based religion is down there, all of you who know about the Messiah but are rejecting me, all of you see signs and miracles, and yet you will not believe. That's, he's talking to the royal official and chastising him, but he's chastising the royal official on behalf of all of the Jewish people. And the reason he's chastising them is because they're only interested in Jesus, if they are interested in him, in what he can do for them temporally. Not temporarily. It's, Yes, it would be temporarily, but temporally meaning of this world in this moment. Jesus is there for your eternal need. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you get past all the code speak, here's what Jesus is saying. There's like a whole paragraph behind the text of his one little liner. He's saying you don't believe in me, you just want me to do stuff for you. That's it. And the irony is that the stuff that I do for you, which I will do from time to time, isn't really truly eternally what you need. What you need is to believe in me for salvation. And he's saying to, to the a royal official, you, sir, and everyone else is here for one reason. You're here for one reason, and it is the wrong reason. You are here for your wishes and desires, you are not here for righteousness and redemption from your sin. You all don't get it. And that's our problem, too. I can't tell you how many people, you know, when you're in a social situation and then somebody finds out that I'm a pastor, uh, the, the, most common resp- the two most common responses is the first thing they do is they apologize for their language. I've heard it before. But then often what they'll do is they'll say something like this. And maybe it's just because they don't know what else to say, but they'll say, Oh, yeah, I tried Christianity once and it didn't work for me. I tried Christianity, it didn't work for me. In other words, they didn't get their way temporally. That's what it means. They had some problem, and they went to church, somebody prayed, the problem didn't get fixed. Well, God's out. Okay? Or maybe they've come. And then they begin to read scripture and they come across certain passages in scripture and they don't like it when the Bible says things like in James, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. What do you mean when I encounter trials? I thought, I thought the whole idea of Christianity was you know, smooth sailing for the rest of my life. I thought that's what it was. No, this is Reality. The point is is that you need the gospel because you're going to have trials. They don't like it when the Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. What? No way. I'm better than everybody else. Or when it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the new S word the last 20 years in our culture. Submission or submit. And I certainly don't like it They say when Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Hang in there with me. Some of you are here for the wrong reasons, and don't get me wrong. We are glad that you are here, but some of you are here for the wrong reasons. Jesus wants to save you from your sin, from your separation from God, and he wants to reconcile you to God. He's not here to fulfill your worldly and carnal hopes, dreams, and wish list. And it's my sincerest prayer that you will do some serious and honest self-assessment and that the Holy Spirit would convict you of your misguided expectations. I understand why you have the expectations, but they're misguided in the light of what the gospel can truly do for you, which is way better than even what you're thinking it can do for you. It's it's C.S. Lewis uh, talking about the little boy who is content in poverty, to make mud pies all day long because he cannot imagine what a holiday at the beach would look like. Those of you, those of us, who think that the gospel is to simply fulfill your own little wish list, our problem is, is that we can't imagine what Jesus can really do for us. The fullness and the comprehensive nature of the gospel. So 49 through 50 now. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, some people talk about how there's a second level of belief later in this passage, and we'll get to it. So they say, he didn't really believe for salvation at this point. He will later. But at least we know he's on his way. I think he did believe for salvation at this point. And the reason is because he didn't think twice about turning around and walking back 25 miles to his home where he knew his son would be healed. And at least he's on his way to salvation. He's hearing the gospel in what Jesus is telling him. And besides that, think about if you're a parent. And you're the wife and you sent your husband out. The husband says, I'm going to go and talk to this Jesus guy and maybe he'll heal our son. And and you're heading back now to the house. You know that to head back with no news, bad news, you didn't bring Jesus, what's wrong with you? Our son is dead. Our son is dying. You don't want to head back there that easily, that calmly. And yet he turns and he walks away. He believed the word that Jesus said to him. And this understanding of believing the word, think about this, in, in the, the letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, one of the things he says is, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. In, in other words, that's a reference to at the end of a battle, when, when, a, when a nation or a city-state has won a battle, a person would run from the front of the battle back to the city-state, and they would run exuberantly because they had victory, And they would look at the feet, how beautiful are those feet that are coming to deliver uh, the victorious message, the good news of victory to us. Paul says that about the gospel, those who carry the gospel, those of us who tell others about Jesus, how beautiful are the feet of those that carry the good news. And the only way you can understand that good news is to hear it by word. You're hearing the word. And so this, this royal official hears the word and he believes how beautiful are Jesus' feet who's carrying this good news and now he becomes the carrier of the good news and yet he doesn't even have to carry the good news back as we'll find out. His son is being healed at that very moment. And so he believed. If we were to boil down the gospel of John to one word, what would that word be? It would be believe, trust, faith. The royal official hears Jesus' rebuke, and he responds in faith. He believed. That's what verse 50 says. Was it a complete and total saving faith? Maybe not yet, but he believed enough to turn and go. And this sign is included in John's Gospel specifically because it supports his whole purpose for writing the Gospel, which we find in John chapter 20. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The man went from seeking a temporal miracle to believing in Jesus in a matter of just a couple of minutes. You have to ask yourself why. Why did he do that? Because Jesus confronted him, that's why. Because Jesus gave an incongruent answer. He confronted him. Not because Jesus got him out of a jam. He confronted the man. Those of you who don't know Jesus, who don't believe Jesus, you don't need a sign. You're not going to believe even if Jesus gives you a sign. You need Jesus to stop you in your tracks and to blow up your insufficient worldview. That's exactly what Jesus did to me in 1987. I had a worldview, and it was awesome, and it was all about me. And Jesus blew up that worldview. And that's when the Holy Spirit worked in my life and converted my heart. And this man ended up with such great faith, such fervent belief, that he simply left and headed back to his home, that 25-mile trek, with nothing more than Jesus' word that his son would be healed. He didn't ask for a contract. He didn't ask for proof. He didn't ask Jesus to swear on the lives of his family. He just believed, and yes, his son was healed, but the most important thing that happened that day, and as a parent, this is tough to hear, and it's tough to digest, but the most important thing that happened that day was that he believed. Yes, his son was healed, but the most important thing was that he believed, and here's what happens, 51 through 53. As he was going down, his servants met him, and and so... They didn't wait till he got home. Notice how this is written. They didn't wait till they got home. They were waiting for him. They were, they were so excited. It was like um, the father seeing the prodigal son coming, and they ran out to meet him. They were so excited about what, it, what had happened. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that, this son was, that his son was recovering. So he asked them what hour it was when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. And now this was the second sign that Jesus did. I, just imagine that interaction in verse 51. He's telling them the good news. Boss, you won't believe it? He's out of the blue. He's getting better. And he kind of goes, yeah, I know. It's cool, isn't it? And then he tells them all about Jesus. And it says that his whole household believed. In that cultural context, it meant not only did his wife and his sons and his daughters believe, but everybody that was a part of his enterprise, his household, all of his servants, all of his contractors, everybody that was a part of it, these men that came out to meet him, they all believed in Jesus as Messiah. Through his testimony of his interaction with Jesus, he said, I've met the Messiah. I am now capable of telling other people about Jesus. And all I did was have a 30-second conversation with him but I can now tell people about Jesus. I can tell them the good news. I have beautiful feet as well. They all believed, and this should remind us, this is common language about the gospel. Um, In the book of Acts, chapter 16, Paul is out doing his missionary work, and he and Silas come to Philippi, the city of Philippi, and and they're ministering there, and there's this woman that's following them, but she's, she's not quite right. She's like got a demon in her. And finally Paul and Silas turn around and confront her and they rebuke her. Well, the men in the city who knew the woman didn't like this. And so then they went to the officials of the city and they said, "Uh, these men are a problem, Paul and Silas. And so they riled up the entire city against Paul and Silas. And so um, the, the police, if you will, in Philippi they beat Paul and Silas, and then they threw them into the prison in Philippi, and they put them in chains and in stocks. And then they left them there. They beat them, put them in chains and stocks. I can't even imagine. I have, a, I have this phobia about anything around my neck. Um, the only thing I don't like about doing weddings is that I have to wear a tie. That's the only thing I don't like. Otherwise, I love doing weddings, okay? It's, it's just, you know... Don't wear a tie to the wedding. That's like the best news to me. Imagine being in the stocks. I mean, it it was awful. And what did Paul and Silas do that night? At midnight, they were singing praises to God in the stocks, in chains, having been beaten. And at that moment, God sends an earthquake into Philippi, and the earthquake is so violent that it breaks the chains and the stocks and throws open the doors to the prison. And in their culture, this is a Roman colony now, so they were part of the Roman Empire, and a Roman jailer was responsible for these prisoners, and if the prisoners ever escaped, the Roman government would replace the prisoners' lives with the jailers' lives, and they would execute the jailer. And so the jailer came after the earthquake and saw that the doors to the prison were all open. He assumed that everybody had fled the prison, and he drew his sword to kill himself because he didn't want to have the government do it. He's just going to go ahead and take care of himself. And as he's about to kill himself, he hears Paul and Silas yell, Wait! We're still here! God has saved us! And he puts the sword away. Paul and Silas tell him about Jesus. He takes them back to his house, and what does it say? Twice in Acts chapter 16, his whole household believes. Everybody associated with the jailer's house believes. He has an encounter with the Messiah through Paul and Silas, he can now tell his whole household about it as well. And that whole seventh hour thing, the purpose of telling the reader about the seventh hour is that, you know, there really are no such things as consequences. I'm sorry. Not consequences, coincidences. There, there, are, there are consequences, so trust me about that one. There are no such things as coincidences Man, somebody over here looked at me like, I man, they were like, no such thing as, what kind of church is this? (laughs) No, coincidences. No such thing as coincidences. God is sovereign. Understand, God either causes or allows everything that happens. Yes, we have agency. That's why we have to say either causes or allows everything that happens. But he is sovereign. And if that's not true, that he either causes or allows everything to happen, then he's not God. We often think about how things lined up so beautifully or lined up so badly for us. And we call it a coincidence, and it's really not. God had a hand in it, and we should be wise enough when that happens to ask for what purpose. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, where the stars seem to align. Whether it's good or bad, we should ask for what purpose. Sometimes it's just to bless us. Sometimes it's to teach us. Sometimes it's for God to reveal himself to us in a new and special way that just affirms our faith in him. Sometimes it's to confront us, and sometimes it's to discipline us. Sometimes it's to challenge us and to to, um, call us to something greater, and sometimes it's to build perseverance and patience and steadfastness and endurance. And if we're wise, we would slow down and eliminate the haste in our lives and we'd consider what God is doing. And in all of it, we would give thanks. Because God is doing something in our lives. So I open by talking about the wine and how it represents joy and blessing and restoration. Talking about this miracle here, the sun lives and how that represents resurrection. And talking about the miracle that we'll talk about in John chapter 6 and how that represents provision. So think about that, but then add this to the little comprehensive nature in which you're going to think about Jesus. The three major encounters that we've seen so far in this gospel. In John chapter 3 he encounters Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a respected, austere, intellectual, academic man of great power and beseeching pride and Jesus loves him. And then the very next chapter, chapter 4, he encounters the woman at the well, the Samaritan sinful woman He encounters this woman who is an outcast in her own community. She's an outcast ethnically. She's an incorrect woman of low morals. And Jesus loves her. And then here we have this royal official. This royal official who works for the government. A government that the Jews actually did not like. A government that... um, would inspire in the Jews a level of rage that we kind of see going on in today's culture as well. And yet Jesus loves him. He has sold out to the Roman government, and yet Jesus loves him. Jesus crushes our categories. Jesus crushes our groups. Jesus crushes our identities apart from him. So many of us today, we want to to find our identity by aligning ourselves ethnically or politically or ideologically or whatever it is. We want our identity sexually, gender, in gender. We want to identify ourselves by aligning ourselves with some kind of camp. Jesus comes and crushes those and gives us himself and says, your identity is in me. That's where your identity is. And in doing so, he crushes our self-righteousness. That's what he does. And we understand that our righteousness is, is in him. And that's good news, and that is something to celebrate. And that's what we proclaim. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word and its truth. And I just ask that, again, you would you would help us see the end of us and who you really are. Help us to know who you are so that we can understand better who we are and know our need for you. Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are wicked and deceptive beyond all things and no one can understand them. And we are fooled by them all the time. Convert our hearts, change our hearts so that we seek after you. And we know that the beginning of all wisdom is to know you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we welcome those of you who are joining us on the live stream. And uh, we hope you have your elements ready for communion. And if you uh, came in today and, and forgot to grab your uh, little uh, communion packet as you walked in, please go ahead and grab that now. We kind of even like having a little bit of movement in the, in the room during this time. Um, so go ahead and do that. We're going to take communion together. That communion at the Lord's table, again, is a reminder of who we are and that we embrace Jesus and that we celebrate and proclaim his death until he comes again. It's November 1st. You realize that Advent starts on November 29th. That's how close we are to that. And we're going to proclaim and we're going to celebrate that second coming of Jesus by talking about the first coming of Jesus. And so we do that now as we take these elements together. Also, again, if you need prayer, uh, we'll be available in in the wings for prayer. If you want to come up for prayer also after uh, the service for a little while. And then Trey's going to come up after this song, and he's going to give us our benediction, but he's also going to uh, tell us about Orientation Sunday as well and tell us what happens with that.
3: Lord, we proclaim that from the bottom of our heart, that it's you who we serve, you are our King, Jesus. I pray that that would stick with us and form us and form our week, and uh, Lord, even through this tumultuous time, that uh, you would be the only God that we serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey everyone, Uh, thank you for coming and worshiping with us. Uh, I'm Trey, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today is Orientation Sunday. So if you're new or if you've been coming for a little bit but you don't really know anyone on staff, uh, we would love to meet you. We'd love to know you. We'd love to have your name so that we can pray for you. Um, I'll be back at the Connect Desk um, and then we'll start a little orientation tour. We'll take a little walkabout, it'll take like 10 minutes will end in the patio, and then uh, there we'll have a little party with the pastors and the staff. A little miniature party, It'd be like another ten minutes that they'll be standing there and meet with you, um, and you can talk, ask questions, or get to know us. We'd love to know you. Um, also, student ministry, uh, take your time. But twelve p.m. or uh, twelve p.m. Yeah, twelve p.m. We'll be meeting at room eight, um, and we'll have some pizza, and then we'll go till one thirty. Cool. I'm gonna read uh, out of Revelation something that frank was talking about which is having hope for the things to come eternity in eternity not necessarily just uh this this world and so i'm going to read this over us as our benediction in revelation 7 therefore they are before the throne of god and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence they shall hunger no more neither thirst any more The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thank you for being here. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you either on Tuesday night, this Tuesday night, or uh, Sunday.